0: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
1: I had developed some messaging technology and we like me and a friend had been like, had got a patent on that technology and we'd sold it to a few real estate agents. And about 4 weeks later, they ended up like we pitched them and some of their investors and they ended up just writing us checks on the spot.
0: This is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyron Sharp and in this episode, we're speaking with Vincent Turner, director and founder of 4 tech companies. We explore Turner's decision to leave university at the age of 21 to pursue a business idea of selling his messenger technology to investors and how 20 years later, he has become an innovator in the finance and property industry. Turner has undertaken many roles within his businesses but with over 20 years of experience in the tech industry he understands that the small components cannot fly under the radar.
1: I'm, a, so I'm the founder of Uno, uh, and that's my fourth tech company, if you like. Uh, so I've been an entrepreneur, I'm not loving that word, but a tech founder for four, yeah, for 20 years over four different businesses. Uh, I currently focus kind of in the innovation part of what we do. Um, so my, my official title, I think if you went to my LinkedIn, which says founder and director. Uh, and you know what my role is predominantly, you know, is, is working on these key things uh that are kind of, I hate the word special projects but it's kind of those levers, the, the things that sort of have to be done They don't really fit in someone's role and if someone does them, they can be a real game changer for the business like some of the tech we launched last year.
0: So, how did he get started and what made him so successful even after the 2001 market crash?
1: It sort of happened by accident which I think is how a good chunk of my life has happened I guess. Uh, I was at university in Perth where I'm from uh, and I was studying finance and it was in like 99 like um big tech boom like the first tech boom and i walked into the wrong lecture theater uh and there was some guys giving a talk on hey when you finish your commerce degree come and join us and become an advisor like a financial advisory firm and i went cool i've got a startup idea can i come and pitch you my idea and the guy's like sure and so i went to lunch about two weeks later and i pitched these guys my idea i had developed some messaging technology and we like me and a friend had been like Have got a patent on that technology and we'd sold it to a few real estate agents. And about four weeks later, they ended up like we pitched them and some of their investors and they ended up just writing us checks on the spot. Um, And so I left university to go and pursue this business idea and then the investors ended up putting another million dollars in. It's like I'm 21 at this point. And they're like, you need to leave university and go to Sydney. I'm like, all right, fine, sure. And so that was business number one. Uh, And then we found ourselves in 2001 when the tech bubble burst we had money, we had customers, we had revenue, like we were like we were going well, I guess, And but the market became terrible, so we're like, what else can we do, given we have all these things, and we pivoted, if you like, that word didn't really exist then, but we pivoted to mortgage software, um, because all of our customers were banks, so we had an opportunity to build mortgage software um, for, for one of the banks, and then ultimately all of them, uh, and that sort of became the second business, if you like, so it was the same business, but it was a totally different shift to what we were doing, um, we ended up having about 90% of the banks on that platform. Um, we were processing about $50 billion a year in mortgages through that platform. Uh, so it was you know pretty significant um, at the time. Uh, and then I ended up getting sick of that and so I decided to leave that business altogether. In fact, I walked away from it. I got nothing out of it in the end because uh, we had so much investment and all these other things and I was young and didn't negotiate very well, I guess. Uh, but ended up learning a lot and executing a lot and getting a reputation in mortgages and finance. Uh, And then went to San Francisco um, originally to do industrial design uh, and then decided, Nah, I don't want to do that. I've got an opportunity to do financial technology like fintech was becoming a word. And so I started a company called PlanWise, which was focused on helping people make better financial decisions, Um, partially motivated by a very terrible property decision I made a few years prior, which we can talk about later. Uh, and then that business we did the, the standard startup thing in the valley like go and raise money and you know get the press and all this kind of stuff and, and did develop some really cool tech but ultimately, The business model wasn't right and it was clear we needed to actually be in financial services. And I realized my network in Australia was much better than it was in the US and we would need a lot of capital which I couldn't get in the US. And so, I had an opportunity to come back to Australia in 2015 and ended up getting that company and that technology and rolling that into what is now UNO which is what I'm focused on at the moment.
0: How did Turner do in Silicon Valley and does he consider a valuable experience?
1: Silicon Valley is very good at funding things with a lot of capital once they're already working. There's a lot of capital over there for that. there is a lot of capital for early stage stuff where it you know, it doesn't work yet um, but that stuff tends to look a certain way, right you like you have an outsized advantage and I'm not sour grapes on this like there's people who go there without any of these things and, and raise money and do well, but I didn't um, you know you typically you've come out of a particular college, Stanford, you know whatever, or you've worked at a particular company, Facebook, Google, Apple, whatever, or you've had an exit previously, and if you can sort of get through those kind of lenses, then then U.S. investors in Silicon Valley are like, great, we'll put some early stage capital into you. Or if you're technical, you, I'm not a I'm not a coder. I'm technical, but I'm not a coder. Um, so I just I didn't fit the mold there, you know. And I was able to raise money, but not from the valley. I raised it from a bunch of different places in my own networks, uh, and that was surprising. But I sort of get it.
0: Let's take a look at what a typical day for Turner looks like.
1: The kind of knowledge of how mortgages works and what we're trying to achieve uh, even though I'm not in day-to-day is still in, in my head and a lot of a lot of what I'm doing day-to-day is getting that out of my head so that the people who actually deal with it day-to-day can design the software, drive the customer experience, execute the, the, the marketing, whatever because I'm a founder and like have been quite founder led but I stepped back from the CEO role about two years ago um, and I, I think a lot of my day is in meetings with, with people in the business who, who need to be get doing their job and I need to hand over to them so that's what a lot of what I'm doing. Uh, I'm also doing a lot with external stakeholders, whether it's people who, are, who might want to invest in the company or pe- companies we might, we might want to partner with or banks who we already do a lot of work with, we're trying to do more work with. We want to do more than just send them loans. We want to actually help them with their technology. Um, so a lot of it is, I, got, I don't know, it feels like kind of enterprise business development kind of stuff, taking a lot of calls, being on a lot of like following through a process. Uh, and then, outs- like and you know, sort of my kind of the bulk of where I spend all my time Um, But I've invested in probably about a a dozen companies, um, about half a dozen active at the moment Uh, and so I'm often helping them. I probably spend about four to six hours a week helping other entrepreneurs, Um, you know, like I I enjoy it and they reach out and I'm pretty bad at saying no to stuff. Uh, Separately, I run a podcast as well. I interview people who I think are doing impact-led stuff because that's interesting to me and I'm not not doing enough for that myself. And then I also have a belt that I'm going to launch them um, as a side project
0: Along with many other projects, Turner enjoys helping out other companies and entrepreneurs even if he doesn't quite have the capital to keep them running.
1: I'm not a full-time angel investor. I don't have the capital to do it to be perfectly honest or um, the headspace I think the guys who go and make, or girls who make 20, 30 investments a year are like angel investors. I'm kind of opportunistic if I see a company or a brand that I love that's doing really cool stuff that I think I can help because I've done startup for 20 years. And I usually just find them on Twitter and go, hey, I love your stuff. If it turns out that they're raising money at the level and stage that I can play at and be meaningful from a helping perspective, I'm usually like, hey, I love what you're doing. Can I help plus right put a small amount of money in? Um, it's never enough for them to run their business. It's, you know, it's like in the order of 10, 20 grand kind of thing. Um, but it's more to get me a seat at the table because I'm like, you guys are doing cool stuff.
0: Turner prefers to focus on the problem solving of tech startups rather than the stories of rags to riches.
1: And i've gone and lived it in in san francisco and like it, i i think we do have a lot of startup culture and some aspects of it are good but i think getting too focused on the rags to riches when did you run out of money and all this kind of stuff it, it, like i'm so interested in what problem are you solving who does it impact how are you rethinking you know the way the world works like those stories i think are, are far more fascinating like and and reach people in a different way there's only so many times you can listen to the Oh, I ran out of money and then and I had this big break and now I'm worth a billion dollar. Come on, cool. Yeah, I mean like we've heard that story, you know, and like like it's not I don't know, it's not it doesn't like I think a lot of people want to hear, you know, they want they want something that they can potentially relate to as well.
0: With doctors for parents, Turner was expected to study medicine or at least finish his university degree. But that never stopped him.
1: My parents, both doctors, they wanted their sons to go into medicine. One of us, at least, all all of us ended up in IT. Um, so, like I joked, that we have a full stack family. My younger brother is a front end engineer, a full stack engineer. My older brother's like a sysadmin. At one point, um, that first company I was talking about, I was actually hiring both of them. So I dropped out of university and I was hiring and employing the two who had done their degrees. And my mother was like, "Oh my god, you know, this is she couldn't handle it." So I sort of I, I ended up hiring one via a firm, so it looked like he worked for someone else, even though I still hired him. And I, the other one, I got him a job somewhere else, and you know, he's still there actually. Um, but I was in Perth. Uh, I, I had a lot of exposure early on to kind of hospitality and. Uh, founder-led businesses, like just cafes and stuff, that people in there running the business, high focus on service and pro- and you know and professionalism and, and like really strong kind of service and work ethics, um, and I think that sets you up in everything that you do, not just in business but in life generally. And like I was, you know, I had some really hard but bosses, but I now look back and go, these people help to make me kind of who I am in terms of my work ethic or my attention and like just drive to, to get things done or to do things a good way or the right way or a better way. Um, my parents are interesting as well because like they're both doctors. Um, mum's kind of – Medicine, but also did another degree somewhere else, and then and has a massive interest in classical music. I did a bunch of music, which I'll talk about in a sec. Um, But my dad is one of those guys who's like a Renaissance man. Like he, he, you know, played four or five instruments. He was self-taught on all of them, but was competent. Like piano and like guitar and violin, I think, from memory, and clarinet. Um, He could also he designed his own printed circuit boards to make his own valve guitar amplifiers. And so he's a doctor, but he said, I want these guitar amplifiers because I want to make my own amps. But to do that, I need to have a printed circuit board. To make a printed circuit board, I need to know how to design them. So I'm going to learn how to design and then design and then handcraft them. Um, And we grew up in a a, quite a well-to-do suburb, but we had a metal laid in our garage. You know, like none of these things really made sense, but it meant that me and and my brothers are quite curious. Like we're kind of, we want to understand how something works. I think that sort of grounds you in that idea
0: Tech was always in the cars for Turner and at the age of 17, he built his first business from his home in Perth.
1: We had a computer very early on. So we had a computer in the house the year I was born, 78. Um, we all kind of, I don't know how true this is but my memory of this is we all basically learned to program before we learned to read and write um, and both my brothers are engineers effectively. So there was a strong engineering culture. In fact, mum used to ban computer talk from the dinner table. You know, you can talk about anything but not computers because all you four talk about it, blah, 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 computers. Uh, so I think it was inevitable that I was going to end up in tech um, and I just got an opportunity in '95 to build a real estate portal um, in Perth. It didn't exist at the time. It was the first real estate portal. It was about the same time REA got started and we used to tra- trace the street directory and actually make it so you could search by map. So you could go into a suburb and click on it and say there's five properties and this is like 10 years before Google Maps even existed. You know, and so like those kind of things were what what we were doing as sixteen and seventeen year olds, and the messaging thing just came from a random conversation. And I think Perth was is the way I describe it is a, it's an awesome place to grow up. It's an awesome place to raise kids. It's an awesome place to grow old. But that bit in the middle, it's kind of no offence, kind of sleepy.
0: Turner prefers the fast paced lifestyle to match his business ventures.
1: A lot will go back, you know, because Perth, like. To its credit, Perth and the whole Western Australia down south region is an amazing lifestyle. Um, but I, I found my calling more at the pace and the level that I'm finding probably in Sydney, into a degree in San Francisco. Um, and so I just the move to me to Sydney was kind of like makes sense; it's kind of natural. Um, but I think a lot of the kind of ethic around how to think about things came from you know growing up in Perth and, and the environment I grew up in.
0: And how did Turner's parents feel about what happened next?
1: Well, I dropped out of university and went to Sydney on the back of that dropout. I never went back. Mum's not happy. When she meets a new person, my dad will be like, don't bring up university. Your mother's still not happy.
0: He never had plans to follow in his parents' footsteps.
1: I, was doing, like, I didn't want to do medicine or law. or I mean, I didn't get into medicine either, to be fair. But I didn't want to do medicine, law, or engineering. Uh, and so I, the only thing left after that is arts or commerce. And I liked business. I'd I had my first business when I was 14. I was selling you know, almond shortbread to the deli that I also worked at. You know, I've always had businesses, you know, it's been like businesses. Yeah, it's like because you can do something.
0: Coming up after the break, we learn what happened after the 2001 market crashed.
1: The messaging bit went for a few years and then it was in 2002 after we had, you know, the tech crash happened in 2001.
0: How did Turner's first company come about?
1: The guy who I uh, was at uni with a great friend of mine, he, he went back to uni so he basically stepped out of the company about two years later.
0: And that's next. I'm Tyrone Shum and you're listening to Property Investory. The market crashed in 2001, changing Turner's plans for his messaging software but also presenting him with new opportunities.
1: The messaging bit went for a few years and then it was in 2002 after we had, you know, the tech crash happened in 2001 Um, and so we had money in the bank and we're like what else do we do? and we started talking to Westpac, who was one of our messaging clients, and they said, hey, we're trying to replace all the paper in the mortgage application process. Maybe you could help us solve that problem. And and the other guy I was in business with was a mortgage broker who wrote a lot of business at Westpac, which is why we had that opportunity. And we took a lens of the problem you have, Westpac, is that you're trying to get the broker to do something that serves your interest, but you haven't designed it for, for their problem, right? The broker's with the customer. They don't want to have to learn a new system. They want to keep a copy of the data. They want to reuse the data. And so we designed a bit of software that did that and just as a byproduct, happened to send you the data electronically. And that by doing that, West, the brokers were like, we love this. So Westpac ended up mandating it, so it became a better business. Um, and it became, that was, I was already, the, my first business really, or the first digital business was in property anyway. So it was sort of coming full circle back into property and mortgages. Um, and I guess the even as a 22, 23-year-old, I was quite comfortable walking into a boardroom with a bank, you know, or a you know lender who had people there who were 30 or 40, and selling them what we were doing, I wasn't uncomfortable in that situation. Um, and that that industry is quite self-contained. Most of the people who were in that industry 20 years ago are still in that industry. And so, if you're in that industry and active for five to seven years, then you have you can develop a network and a, and a reputation of okay, this person. Is straight up, or they deliver, or their technology is good, or they tend to innovate, or ahead of the curve, whatever the, the kind of label is. Um, and so, a lot of that kind of 2002 to 2009 was just executing that. But to be fair, I made a crap ton of terrible decisions with regards to how we raised capital, who our shareholders were. I, I sort of was so focused on the problem and and like not and not disrupting our employees that I probably missed the wood for the trees in setting up the company properly, negotiating better for, for my own, you know, share of the company. And eventually I was like, I, I just don't want to be here anymore.
0: How did Turner's first company come about?
1: Well, kind of organically. So the first the messaging company, me and another guy who I was at uni with, um, and a guy who was my mortgage broker at the time, the three of us started Pisces, that was that first company messaging. The guy who I was at uni with, was a great friend of mine, he he went back to uni, so he basically stepped out of the company about two years later. Uh, and then the mortgage broker guy stayed for about another three or four years, and that's when we transitioned from messaging to mortgages. And then that company had good customers that had good intellectual property and had some pretty reasonable revenue. It wasn't profitable, but it had good revenue and good recurring revenue. And when my investors wanted to get out, we brought new investors in, and then we bought, merged with two or three other companies that created a company with four companies, all of which. We're sort of doing okay, but not good enough. Um, and a lot of the work that needed to be done to rationalise those companies really didn't happen fast enough. I wasn't—I was the CEO, I wasn't driving the ship. And as a result, you know, the it, did, it wasn't it, this wasn't run as well as it could have been run. We could have, like, the strategy was, oh, let's have all these companies that are all kind of semi-related, and then we'll, you know, reduce their overheads and operate, you know, make that efficient. And that didn't really happen. And as a result, we had a board um it came from the four companies that we pushed together and probably had about 80 shareholders and it was just it was all over the shop you know there was some good shit in there but it was but it was lumped with all these other things that you know weren't great or weren't clearly strategically aligned
0: and how does he feel about the transitions his company took and some of the mistakes that were made
1: if you go through that the learning experience of what not to do in a company in terms of how to set it up relationships with co-founders you know investment investors how to run boards like that stuff you learn very quickly over four or five years. Quickly, um, what you know, what what works and what doesn't work, and that helps you the next time you run a business. I mean, the U.S. stuff. I didn't make any of those mistakes. I did make them, but I managed them a hell of a lot better. Um, but learned other things that didn't go right, and I had the same learning inside. You know, it's after you know twenty years, I've finally managed to get through a huge number of the learnings that you need to properly set up a company and run a company. Um, you can read all the books and listen to all the podcasts you want, but you have got to lived experience.
0: Turner believes that COVID-19 has definitely accelerated the move from manual steps to digital.
1: I think a lot of what a broker does is dictated to them by a lender. Uh, interestingly, you know, the events of this year with regards to COVID have accelerated a lot of the things that lenders have been saying they're going to do for years because they became no longer just an important but an imperative. Uh, and so I think, I think we're finally seeing a turning point on a lot of those things in terms of if you think about the manual steps that are involved, uh, you know, filling out forms, you know, getting identified, going and getting evaluations, signing documents, those kind of four or five key moments that are very kind of manual, more and more lenders are uh, moving more and more of those steps to be more and more digitised. And it's kind of happening gradually, um, but I'm sort of reminded of that, and I'm going to paraphrase it badly, but that Bill Gates thing around things don't seem to change much in the short term, but in the long term, they change a lot. Um, I think we'd be sitting here having this conversation in five years and there will be lenders who you sign in and you connect your bank accounts uh, and then they issue you with an offer document that you sign on your phone and then the money's in your account the next day and they've paid out the other lender. I, I We're three to five years away from that being a reality for some lenders and that's enough because as soon as some do it, the rest have to do it.
0: And yet, he understands that this system is very fragile and there are a lot of risks associated.
1: A lot of it's plumbing. It's just the thing is that you know, plumbing like just get the thing from there to there and you're like yeah but these are in some cases 20, 30-year-old systems. So PEXA the system that does e-conveyancing I think I read somewhere today does about 70% of conveyancing which is the act of transferring one to the other. Ten years ago that system didn't exist or however long it was you know and so this idea of having digital settlements doesn't exist until you have the plumbing to support multi-party digital settlements i just you, you know it's it's easy to gloss over and say just do it and you're like okay well you know the number of people who are involved in doing something that cannot be done incorrectly or people lose their houses you know they don't lose their lives but they lose their houses and potentially their livelihood uh Those things are sensitive. There's a lot of reputational risk associated with not doing it correctly. And so uh, there's a lot of people in in certain parts of that business who are saying, like, this thing isn't broken as far as we're concerned from a risk lens. So why would we do it? It's not until you get a COVID that there becomes an imperative to do it.
0: What is Turner's company, Uno, doing in terms of streamlining the process?
1: A lot of what we've been doing at Uno is saying, look, the, the digitization of the mortgage transactional part, which is this narrow part of the overall period in which you have debt is is going to happen at the pace it's going to happen. As long as you know is is helping to bring it to market and is interacting with the partners and bringing them on that journey. But we can only we can we can only move it so fast, right? We can't make the horse drink. Um, what we can do is is understand what our role is. And a lot of Unos focus, which is sort of where I've been focused the last two years, is what is Uno doing for you that a broker can't do for you. And we've sort of redefined that role as being look, we can all help you get a good deal at the moment you get a good deal. We have a dedicated broker and we help you to do that in a digital way. You don't have to see us. So, that's a, if that suits you, then that's why we're better at that moment. But the thing we do that other people don't do is we continuously monitor this thing you have to make sure you're always getting a good deal, not just at the moment where you get a deal. And so much of our innovation and focus has been around owning that space, which has nothing to do with the moment at which you transact. Eventually, it leads to that moment, obviously. Um, so, I think we're Playing in the space that we can control, you know, the the pieces of the puzzle rather than going, Oh, well our propositions hopefully when lenders let us do this thing, you know?
0: What does he think of third parties in this process?
1: The the problem with being a broker is that your ability to innovate in that area is heavily dependent on them. And once they do it, they'll let everyone do it. So it can never be a competitive advantage anyway. So you sort of have to focus on doing that, but what else are you doing?
0: His property investment journey began in 1995 at the age of 18.
1: The first one actually went okay. And look, I, I didn't actually buy the first one. A friend of mine wanted to buy it, and he didn't have enough to make that work. And I, it was about the time I think like 95 when uh, Telstra floated and a few other kind of companies that were privately like company government owned went. And I sort of traded those companies and it turned five grand that I got when I was 18 from my parents into like 20 grand. Like I'd just done a. Few good trades, a couple of them at IPOs. I'm like, all right, I've got 20 grand. He's like, cool. Oh, I need to buy a property, and I don't have enough. Can you? I'm, I'm like, and I met this guy on a plane on the way to Canada, but we're now really good friends. And like, he's, the, and I'm the godfather to his kids, right? So we're we're on that kind of level. And so I was like, oh, that sounds good. And so he bought a property. I put in for effectively a third of it, and was responsible for a third of it. And it was a villa in Perth, uh, and we bought it for 243 grand. I remember uh, and then uh, we like, put a kitchen in, you know, like it had a shitty kitchen. We knocked a wall out. We put a kitchen in and then put in some flooring. And then about he, he lived in it for a bit and then we rented it for a bit. And I think when he, we went back into it, maybe I lived in it for a bit. I think I was in Sydney at this point, so I didn't do too much. And then we sold it through a mate uh, or a friend at the time. And he got an experience with a real estate agent was like, yeah, you should totally take this price. Like, we're not taking that price. That's not the price we want. Like you're, we're paying you. We're, so we're holding out. They can pay more. We don't need to. We don't need to sell. Like we'll sell when we like. I had this negative experience because we asked a friend to sell our house, and he didn't really care about the price. He just wanted the transaction done.
0: And finally, the sale came to a close.
1: It wasn't the prop kind of property he would tend to sell. He'd be, you know, I'm high flying. I sell these multi-million dollar houses. Your three hundred and fifty thousand dollar apartments of no interest to in me. Um, so anyway, but we, we made money out of it, you know, like I, I think 20 turned into 30 or 40 or something. I don't remember the exact numbers.
0: Then it was onto property number two.
1: That was an interesting learning. Um, but that property was like, was pretty uneventful and I didn't own a property for ages. Uh, and then in 2004, I think it was, I was in Sydney and uh, I don't know why I thought I needed to buy a property at this point. Like, but some I, didn't, I don't remember what drove it. Um, but this second property, I walked, I, I looked online and I found an apartment in the Finger Wharf in Woolloomaloo. Now, if you don't know this building, it's like Primo. Like, it is, it's this beautiful wall stall like building that sticks out into the water. Russell Crowe lives at the end of it. It's full of A list celebrities. You can, it's got views of the city. It's got all these restaurants along one side. Like, like if you're going to buy a place and have it as a rental forever and it'll just tower, like, just give you investment income, uh, it's like, Unbelievable, and I found a place in there, one better with no parking, for four hundred and forty. And I didn't really have, I didn't have the money to do it. But the guy who was in business with at the time lent me the money for the stamp duty part of it, and then used the grant and the whatever to to get around it because that was my first official property, if you like. Um, And like, I didn't do anything. I didn't like, I didn't. I mean, I put some furnishings in there because I lived in it. And then I found out how much I could rent it for. I'm like, I do not need to live here, and I moved out straight away. You know. Um, but the thing that I guess I was going to say is that financially, I didn't, I didn't even run the numbers. Like I was in finance. I was in a business that provided software to mortgage brokers and I didn't build a spreadsheet or do anything. I ran the shower because I was like oh, I wanted to see whether the water pressure was any good.
0: Does he still own that property today?
1: Well, no. I had to, like, When I went to San Francisco, I, you know, when I left Sydney in 2009. I basically got sick of everything. I got sick of my company, my, the problem I was solving, the people I was working with, um, Sydney itself, financial services, tech. I got sick of everything. And when I went to San Francisco, I was going to do industrial design. I ended up going back into tech. I found a co-founder, and I needed to buy him out. And basically, this property was in the black. I had another property that was underwater, um, which we'll talk about in a sec. And I had to just wipe the slate clean. So I had to sell the property, which I sold for five eighty 580 or five eighty five.
0: Turner didn't see this as a good return because of home to sell in a dip in Sydney's property market.
1: The lesson's got to be don't be a forced seller, you know. Like if you if you extend yourself so much in that or something else, that means you don't have a choice as to when you sell. Then you're going you don't you might get lucky, but you probably won't, you know. Or and so I think that lesson was a, was a lesson well earned. Um, but the property that I had, as well as that property, was when I was then earning good money. When it's like two thousand five, I just I I bought a property in Kira. I never looked at it. I've never been to that property ever. It was in Kira, which is next to Coolangatta uh, Airport, and I and the mechanics were right. It's just in a in a high growth corridor. It's right near an airport, but it's not under the flight path. It's one hundred and fifty meters from the beach. So they were the things that drove me to look at it. The thing that wasn't good was that it was a. Um, 42 square meter apartment it was barely bigger than a studio so the banks didn't like it um, so it had no real potential for capital growth unless i bought all five of them in the block and i i bought one and a mate bought another and our plan was to buy the rest of them but then you know the gfc got in the way and our ability to even execute that plan fell apart that property i never ran the financials on it and that property ultimately was costing me about four hundred dollars a month to 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 in terms of the debt versus the equity, and I ended up being forty thousand dollars underwater in terms of the purchase price. So I did everything wrong in that property, and the learning from that was like run the numbers. If you're going to buy a place, you, like and this sounds so obvious, but I I hadn't I hadn't learned that lesson. The first two properties I didn't.
0: Was his mind just focused on his businesses?
1: It was not an excuse. I don't. I mean, I think. I could have sat down and said, okay, what is this? I made two really bad decisions at that time. I bought that apartment and I also invested in an agribusiness or, you know, a tax investment scheme like an almond farm thing. And both of those things cost me 150, 200 grand, you know, and one of them netted out against itself. The almond farm basically had an asset that fire sale to cover a loan and I lost 70 grand or whatever. And then the property overall cost me about $80,000. Over about a seven-year period, in terms of capital loss and you know loss of you know net gearing or whatever. Oh, forgetting time, yeah. And so, like, even though I made those decisions too quickly, I I was too quick to trust in the advice of others. I didn't question things myself. I didn't build out my own financial models. I just I was just they were just terrible decisions. and They weren't well thought through. And I don't I don't think I can make an excuse other than don't do it. Like if you don't know, you don't understand the investment, you shouldn't invest in it.
0: Now, we take a look at Turner's property, Jenny, which took a positive turn.
1: Well, look, I mean, I think like going to the, the company in the US that predated UNO was called PlanWise and it was the whole, I've got a t-shirt somewhere, I, I should have pulled it out, but basically, the premise was make better financial decisions and what we did was we built a bit of technology. It's not actually available anymore. We rolled it into the UNO proposition and company, but um, the technology said if you're going to make a big financial decision, you need to see how that affects you in the future. Right, most financial tools in 2010, 2011, and even today are focused on what have you already spent, and I'm like, that's already happened. You can't change that. The big thing is when you, if you go to tomorrow and decide to take a pay cut, or have another child, or buy a car, or buy a property, then what happens to your future financial situation because of one or more decisions? And plan wise, solve that problem. And the the property incident and the and the timber, the almond farm thing led to this idea of. Most people are very rational at making good decisions when they're well-informed and most of the people aren't well-informed because they can't do what, what I would now do and you probably would as well, which is to build a good Excel model to show you if you buy this $280,000 property and it doesn't go up at this rate or it's trading on this yield or like if you don't run the numbers, you can't know how it's going to affect you if things go back pear-shaped and so you're, you're not informed, so you're not making good decision because of a lack of information. Um, and so I've got, I've got better at that. I'm, I'm, I manage my money well day to day, but I also, when I have a big decision to make, I think, okay, how's this going to work? How's this going to affect me financially? Is this an appreciating asset? I've never bought a new car, for example. You know, I don't, I use debt, but I use it very judiciously as to what that debt's going to achieve. And I'm very clearly aware of my ability to service that debt. So I'm not in a position where I suddenly have to fire sale assets because I can't, know my cash flow is buggered or whatever so i think that's the aha moment
0: So, inspired by Vincent Turner's journey, we'll keep the conversation going in a future episode of Property Investor. We will discuss his strategies when it comes to finding the right properties to invest in and where. We're thinking
1: about Roselle and Lilyfield and places that are kind of kind of these kind of bendy streets and you know kind of funny thing going on. Um, and I ended up finding a rental property on Gumtree uh, that, and a guy was like. Uh, that was renting and I didn't know him obviously uh, and, he, and it was a place with a lot of light and my place in San Francisco had a lot of light.
0: What properties he's still having trouble with today?
1: I haven't won that battle and I, I don't know how I'm going to resolve that. I think eventually, I may need to, to change the way the title works.
0: And that's next time in a future episode of Property Story.